happy to be back sooner than expected. Um, I am sitting down today with the window open and the rain pouring down. I open the window so hopefully you can hear the rain because it does sound lovely. Um, I wanted to do an episode in the spirit of Pride Month and also in the spirit of just, you know, being a woman. <laughs> um, and I feel like these are the episodes that are very cathartic for me and also make me feel very connected to whoever is listening because I think a lot of us, a lot of us in this sphere, um, little corner of connection in this part of the internet, identify with femininity. Um, maybe some of us more than others, but I wanted to do an episode around gender policing and um, the cultural devaluation of femininity and how this is tied in with transphobia and homophobia and sexism and how we can't separate these issues from one another. Um, and just like a general unpacking of how femininity is understood in this culture of 21st century reality. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to unpack some of these ideas of like fear of femininity and the anti-femininity sentiments that often revolve in, in these circles of not only social media, but in real life and how that translates for different people and what this all means for our existence in the world as feminine people. So it's a big conversation and I'm not going to get to everything, but I just wanted to even scratch the surface on some of these ideas that are really important to me and issues that I think should be important to all of us, regardless of what bodies we occupy and what reality that we live in um, and what our lives look like, because this is an issue that affects everyone. So as we're having this conversation, I think it's really important to emphasize that when we're talking about femininity, it's not just in the context of a cisgender woman's experience. When we talk about femininity, we're talking about gender presentation, expression, fluidity, and how this can both be separate and overlapping with one's gender identity. So this means that it affects women, it affects non-binary people, it affects trans people, trans men, trans women, and people of all genders who socially present as feminine or are perceived or coded as feminine. And this is where the term femphobia comes in handy because it takes into account the intersections between transphobia, sexism, homophobia, racism, and how these forces relate to and also rely on one another to fuel prejudice and violence. So instead of only paying attention to forces like sexism and the patriarchy and misogyny and how those manifest in the lives of women, the term femphobia seems to encompass a more broader spectrum that marks the link between the devaluation of femininity and the prejudice against other groups of people, including queer people and people of color. So from this cultural devaluation of femininity as we perceive it based on how people express it comes the act of gender policing, which is essentially the enforcement of norms of gender onto a person based on their perception of normativity. So 
if a person is perceived as not performing their gender appropriately, gender policing might manifest to keep them in line, keep them within the borders of what's considered normal and healthy, which in mainstream society is often defined within a very limited binary. And even though this is changing and more and more we're seeing conversations and representation of gender being understood as a spectrum rather than a very black and white binary, there's still a lot of this gender policing going on with the idea that femininity needs to be performed in a certain way and same with masculinity and androgyny. And I think what makes this even more complicated is that it's not just you know, the very expected straight people trying to control what queer people are doing, but it's happening within communities everywhere. It's a conversation of how we're taught to understand gender and then project our understanding of this idea onto other people to the point where we think there is a right and wrong way to be trans, to be non-binary, to be a woman, to be a man. Like, no matter where we land on the spectrum of gender, I think we're always submitted to and are complicit in and participate in this policing of gender, whether subconsciously or consciously. And I don't think that it's talked about a lot within the queer community itself of, like, how queer people regulate one another or expect things from one another or project ideas of gender or identity or sexuality onto one another because it's meant to be this beautiful, open, welcoming space, which it absolutely can be. But I think also just, you know, in the age of social media and hyper-representation and all of these different things that we're being exposed to, that encourages a certain level of surveillance, which I kind of want to get a little bit more into in a second. But I think it's really important to recognize that nobody is absolved from the guilt of gender policing and trying to manage or identify or define people's genders for them rather than just letting people figure things out for themselves and dress how they want to dress or do their makeup or not do their makeup or shave their head or whatever. I think that no matter what, there's this kind of expected level of normalcy that you're supposed to reach, whether it's you know, being quote-unquote abnormal when you're queer and getting tons of tattoos and dyeing your hair and piercings and presenting in a very, like, fuck-the-world kind of way. Or if you're straight and cis and you're encouraged to be hyper-feminine and wear skirts and dresses and heels and makeup and do your hair every day. Or as a man, needing to be, you know, buff and, and needing to present yourself as the breadwinner and all of those traditional things that we've heard time and time again. But I think what's interesting is that now that we're coming up with all of these new aesthetics and these new ways of identifying ourselves that aren't actually that new, it's just new in the mainstream, this type of regulating one another is showing up in different ways and isn't always conscious or intentional or most of the time it's not malicious or with with malintent. But it's still contributing to or creating its own discourse of what queer is supposed to look like and what that means for representation and what that means for the importance of queer visibility and all of these topics that are tangled up with one another and made really complicated when you throw technology and this culture of vigilantism that we have into the mix of how we're understanding these issues. 
And on that note, I really want to say that I don't believe that we should all think the same way or that we should all see the world the same way and arrive at one universal way of conceptualizing everything. That to me is a dystopian world. It's an unrealistic world and it's not one that I'm ever concerned in living in. (laughs) I think that there will always be different perspectives because we're all always going to be different from one another. We share different experiences. We understand things differently because of what we bear witness to, what is part of our life, what we were raised to believe, what culture we live in, what our body looks like, what education we've received, what class we're a part of. The list goes on and on and on. And that's what makes this world beautiful. And it's also what makes this world complicated. Like, We don't need to always agree on everything. That's not realistic. And I think that the culture we're living in right now that I was speaking about briefly before of hyper-surveillance prompted by hyper-vigilantism, the preventing, censoring, or punishing of perceived offenses without legal authority enacted by a self-appointed group of people encourages us to think that it's a threat if we disagree with someone or have an opposing perspective from someone even over something small. A public figure that I really admire and think is so emotionally intelligent, Clementine Morgan, who I think I've quoted on here before, I think said this really well. My solidarity and my respect for people is not contingent on total agreement. We have lost the art of disagreement. We instead use blanket statements of not agreeing on everything to protect ourselves from the social punishment of association under cancel culture. I really wanted to bring this up because I think with issues like gender and sexuality and identity, these things that I'm really passionate about, that I love to talk about, that a lot of what this podcast is founded upon, with issues like this, they're always personal. They always mean something to anyone, not just for queer people, not just for women, but for everyone because we all have a relationship with gender. We all have a relationship with our sexuality and it holds a really big and important place in our lives. And so, of course, it's sensitive. Of course, it's hard to talk about. And of course, it's easy to feel defensive when something comes into question or our position is challenged because someone doesn't see things the same way as us when it comes to issues like gender, sexuality, and identity presentation. And because it's such an important and unique issue for everyone, it also means that we're not all going to understand it the same way and we're not all going to relate to it in the same way. And that makes conversations about it challenging sometimes and dangerous sometimes if it's accompanied with a disrespect and devaluation of a person's existence, which is never okay. And what I think is most important is not that we agree on what gender or sexuality or desire is, but that we give one another the autonomy, that we give ourselves the room to explore whatever it means to us as individuals, so long as it's not hurting other people. And I think a key component of this is not attacking one another for having different views or understanding things differently and just being tolerant of one another in the sense that when someone disagrees with you, not taking it as a personal attack when for sure sometimes it can be, and I'm not negating that at all, but 
that we're not going to arrive at a point of solidarity and of building safety across communities if we can't have a conversation with someone that disagrees with us. I think that there's such a great value in respecting and valuing difference to the point where we can connect with people that are different from us, even when it comes to our belief systems. The point I'm trying to make here is that the issue isn't that we don't all understand gender in the same way, but that we need to value one another more and we need to respect one another more so that we can have these conversations about the importance of valuing femininity and valuing queerness and valuing humanity above all else, above belief systems, above concepts, above disagreements. The problem comes up when people don't respect the autonomy and individuality of others and take it upon themselves to decide what's right and what's wrong and then project their own beliefs onto others in order to regulate, discriminate, or suppress their ability to express themselves. This is an issue of violence against women. This is an issue of violence against trans people. This is an issue of discourse and our inability, it seems, to have polarizing discussions without immediately jumping to dehumanize people before we're willing to meet them where they're at and have a conversation. And this gets so complicated when we take into consideration the power dynamics that are at play between people in conversations and how hard it can be to have difficult, challenging conversations with people that you don't see eye to eye with. But without this, we're not going to be able to get past these issues. We're not going to be able to have real conversations if we're not both willing to meet each other in the middle. So following that little tangent that I wasn't expecting to totally drop in there, but I'm glad I did because I think It complicates this conversation of the devaluation of femininity and gender policing because I think it serves as a reminder that it's not an us versus them problem. It impacts some people more than others, but ultimately it's not going to transform or be resolved in any way if we can't have candid conversations with people about it. Because at the root of this issue of femphobia is that there's something inherently bad about being femme. There's something inherently inferior about it, making it something that has less value, that has less meaning, or just a different, less important type of meaning in our world. And I think it's so interesting having this conversation in the context of the girl power movement and the reduction of mainstream feminism to girl bossery. This is something that I've I've wanted to do a whole episode on for a while, and I think I will again in the future to, you know, give it the credit and the the depth that it deserves. But I just wanted to touch on it in this one because I think what's interesting about this conversation that we're having about how femininity is devalued is that it's sort of been flipped on its head and made into this issue of valuing femininity turning into making a line of hot pink vibrators and making feminism into a product to consume and promote and sell and turning this idea of femininity into a commodity, into something to quote-unquote celebrate and be empowered by and reclaim. And I think this is a very interesting and very nuanced conversation to have is the reclamation of certain language or certain ideas or 
images or symbols that are connected to identity and asking ourselves when that shift happens between degradation to reclamation. Like, when does something switch from being degrading to being empowering? What, like, what does that pipeline look like? And I think that gets really blurry when we find ourselves reproducing these norms of desirability around our gender and how we're maybe saying that it's empowerment, but is it really if we're doing it in a way that seems to be doing what they intended in the first place is reducing us to our desirability and our sexuality? So I think the argument that's often made is the power of self-identification and how that goes against enforced categorization. So the power of identifying oneself as something enacts this agency and this empowerment in calling yourself something or embodying something or purchasing something versus having this identity or this thing or this whatever projected onto you by others and how that's what differentiates the degradation to reclamation, you know, binary. Something that comes to mind that I think felt prevalent to me for a little while, I don't know about much anymore, I feel like maybe it's like had its moment in the sun, but reclaiming the slut phase and how that was like marketed to women a little bit as a reclamation of their sexuality because so many of us still um but for me a lot of it had to do with my adolescence and being perceived as a sexual object and being called a slut or being labeled by how many people you have sex with or by how you own your sexuality And I think this is a very common thing for younger women, which I think is disgusting, Um, but people going through puberty for the first time, and, you know, I think it's a very common occurrence for people with, you know, bigger boobs, for example, to be labeled a slut just because of the way their body looks. And this is very tied in with what bodies are perceived as desirable versus undesirable or appropriately sexual versus hypersexual. And this has its roots in so much fucked up history regarding the objectification of women's bodies and bodies perceived as objectifiable as opposed to superior. And within this, there's you know, the class conversation, the race conversation, the disability conversation, everything plays into this and everything plays into this politic of desirability and what's valued, what's not valued, what's objectified, what's seen as okay to find desirable and what's not. And then, of course, thinking about how we internalize this and how we make it into our own understanding of ourselves as people and as sexual objects or as asexual objects. There's always this measuring of femininity of it being too much or too little. And so it begs the question, in what ways can femininity be done or performed that wouldn't perpetuate the idea that it's too much or too little? What comes to mind there and how can that prompt further reflection on what we've taught is okay femininity, what's appropriate, what is just the right amount. And of course, this structured idea of femininity as this perfect ideal thing is completely unattainable and unrealistic. 
And it gets harder and harder the farther away you are from the desirable norm. You're expected to find this perfect balance of being just the right amount of desirable without being hypersexual, all while being under this magnifying glass of scrutiny from everyone around you just waiting for you to mess up. And when you own your sexuality, it somehow justifies the hypersexualization and degradation of women. Like the amount of times I'll see someone post a video of them looking like a fucking snack and totally owning it or talking about their sexuality in some open way. And then I go to the comments and of course there's all the fucking incels being like, oh, haha, little do they know this is what we want or oh, like hush, hush, fellas, like don't don't let them know that this is what we were planning all along is we want them to be empowered by their sexuality so we get nudes or whatever the fuck it is like it's so disgusting and it's so just unsurprising at the same time that no matter how a woman is performing her sexuality and how she's understanding her liberation there's a fucking man in the corner being like oh like i'm watching you And I think there's a repetition in these social movements around sex positivity and female empowerment because we haven't dealt culturally with the underlying issues related to desirability and racialized issues of defining gender and pleasure, like what's considered desirable versus undesirable. And so it makes these movements go in circles because they're not addressing the underlying issues of racialized capitalism and heteronormativity and neoliberalism. And so we can ask ourselves, what's the moment that we're living in right now? And how is this repetition of discourse, whether it's about female pleasure and owning your sexuality and becoming empowered, how does that repetition of these discourses create a new narrative when does that happen and when do we stop going in circles and disguising things as empowerment when it's really just the repetition of an already existing narrative within the borders of capitalism and patriarchy and heteronormativity it's all of these things working together that shape the discourse about sexual liberation and validate certain types of information while still ignoring the underlying issues that created these ideas in the first place. And these ideas are reproduced in online discourses, but then they also manifest materially in daily interactions, which shows us just how these structures are reiterated constantly in order to retain their power. So we have to be paying attention how these things show up in our lives, how we might internalize them, how we even feel about them in the first place. Like, okay, maybe maybe we're okay with a little bit of capitalism exploiting women because it gave me a good vibrator. But like, think about where that's coming from and how those effects are impacting you directly and also how they're impacting the world globally in how we understand sexual empowerment and liberation and feeling embodied in ourselves. And when we do find this capacity to embody our joy, embody our sexuality, that shows what is possible and it threatens this expectation that we're meant to live under suppression, under this power that is telling us that we're not meant to be joyful and embodied and empowered. 
And so one of the most epic things you can do is to figure out what that embodied joy feels like to you outside of all of the discourses trying to sell you the right vibrator or trying to market and commodify your sexuality and explore what that true authentic embodiment feels like to you once you start listening to yourself and stop listening to everything being blasted at you. So I think maybe a fun takeaway for this week could be to journal or ask yourself or just like take some time to meditate on the question, what does embodied joy feel like to you? And it doesn't have to be sexual. It doesn't have to do with orgasm or your physical pleasure necessarily. But what makes you feel like your most embodied, joyful, epic self? And maybe it's a couple things. Maybe it has to do with what you're wearing. Maybe it has to do with who you're surrounded by. Maybe it has to do with where you're located. Maybe it has to do with what music you have playing. Whatever it is, try and brainstorm like a couple, just a couple things and take some time from one of your days and just allow some space for you to feel that embodiment and feel that sense of like, oh yeah, this is me right now. And give yourself permission to just bask in that. But yeah, I think it could be a fun reflective exercise to just think about what things or what feelings or what sensations make us feel like the most embodied version of ourselves. And when I say embody, I think you can interpret it in whatever way you want, but for me, it really means to be in my body, to be in this physical form of mine and have that connected and feel resonant with who I want to be. So with that, I shall leave you to go on your explorations and your little adventures, figuring out what's next for you. And in the meantime, I always love to hear from you. If you want to reach out, you can message me always at thelily.pod on Instagram. And I hope you have a gorgeous, yummy week ahead of you. Um, And I will talk to you so soon. Bye.